Hi everybody, Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church here and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. So, the year is 1999. Prime Minister John Howard finishing his first term of office as the PM. The Y2K bug is concerning everybody. If you're under 25, this is a real thing that happened and you should look it up. It's hilarious in hindsight, but it was a little bit frightening at the time. Stanley Kubrick, the great director, passes away. Luka Doncic, the great NBA player, is born. And half, frank, frankly, half of you guys were born. 1999, I see you, Jordan Lee. I thought of you as I wrote that. And a little film called The Matrix drops into cinemas. Now, I want to imagine for a second, you imagine that you are a Bible college graduate at that time. You are studying at Bible college and you go to see The Matrix in a cinema and your mind is being blown about this film about an alternate reality. It just takes you back and you sit back in your seat going, whoa, like Keanu does. And you just think to yourself, this is a, there is a message in this I've got to preach to my youth group. And so you hitch up your cargo pants and you pick the popcorn crumbs out of the jazz spot you've been carefully curating and you make sure that your hair, which is bleach-tipped and spiky with way too much gel, is correct. And you bolt downstairs to get into your Hyundai XL and you slide that burned Blink-182 CD in as fast as you can to get back home to write that message because it's 1999 and that's about as 1999 as it got. <laughs> the Matrix is in some ways like quintessentially 90s. It's one of those movies that like really sits at the borderline of the 90s and the noughties in that it, it heralds the changing of a guard cinematically, but that's not why we're here, even though I would love to preach on that. <laughs> what it does though is it sends a message about an alternate reality. Now, a thousand sermons have been written around about, about the Matrix by a thousand different preachers, and until today, I had never been one of them, and frankly, I was quite proud of that fact. But here we are, because it sends a message. What is the reality that you are living in? Is there something behind the reality that you think you are living in? Or is there something perhaps that you are not picking up about your current reality? The matrix taps into this higher ideal. Are you willing to live in a comfortable fabrication or in a difficult reality? That's what's at the heart of the matrix. And that's what I want to get into tonight. Now, the Matrix might be over the top in its story, but it's not over the top in the way it points towards this concept of a fabricated artificial reality. Everybody in this room, you live in an artificial reality of some kind, and so do I. We have never been content as human beings to let ourselves be controlled by events around us. So let's think of it as simply as this. We want more space in the world, so we go and chop down trees to create some space. And then we take those trees and we need warmth, so we chop them up further and burn them as a fire to create warmth, because that's some climate control that we would like. And then we realize that we've chopped down too many trees and they're good for us and they help us breathe, so we plant more trees. Now, this is a cycle of stupidity as well, of course, but it is the cycle of human humanity showing our need to control our environment. This is why all of you have Spotify and Apple Music playlists and you have Uber Eats on your phone because you like to control your environment and have things when you desire. And so do I, right? Like, I'm not having a crack at that. But we need to understand that we live at least partially in a kingdom of self. 
where we are the main character in a story that has supporting characters. And maybe if you're really lucky, you might let someone be the co-star with you if you get married. But really, it's just you and a bunch of supporting characters. And some of them just have more screen time than the others. We see the plot as being driven by our desires, motives, pleasures, hopes, and dreams. But make no mistake, we are the main character. Now, sociologically, there's a term for this. It's called individualism. Psychologically, there's a different term for it. It's called narcissism. But biblically, there is a very ancient term that we use to describe this kingdom of self, and it's called idolatry. And it's the idea that we would rather worship a God who we can control than the God of heaven and earth. Let's dig into this for a second. Because idolatry is when... The object of our worship is not God, but some kind of idol. Now, in ancient times, this was really specific and obvious. You had like a wooden or a stone idol, and you worshipped it, and then you put it back in its cupboard and went on your way, basically. And the beauty of an idol is it's very controllable. It's quite a portable God. You'll find it's very handy, you know, pocket size. You can carry it in a small bag. That's very convenient. The inconvenient part is it is immobile and can't do anything for you as a God. So that is an inconvenient part in terms of worship. What happened was the Israelites, when they entered the promised land, were constantly tempted by these idols. And the main reason is in the promised land, in Canaan, most of the idols had to do with about like sexual liberation and being able to have sex with whoever and whatever you wanted. And if that's what you believe your God wants from you, that is a certain selling point to a certain kind of person. But you'll find it has its limitations as well. And so the Israelites went in and they were constantly being tempted by the Baals and the Asherahs, these different gods of the land in Canaan. But the problem was those gods couldn't do anything. But they did serve as a convenient scapegoat when things went wrong. Go, oh, the crops are failing. It's the God's fault. Yeah, the, the stone thing. It's, it's his fault, really. Not, it's not the weather. It's not the cycle of the land. It's not poor farming. No, it's the stone god's fault. It's a very convenient scapegoat when things go wrong. Frankly, some people treat our God like that today, but that's a whole other sermon. Idolatry is when we shape reality around our intentions and preferences, right? And we all shape reality around our intentions and preferences. The question is, how do we stop? Because God has a different reality for us. A reality he wants us to step into. A reality we get to build together and move towards a now and not yet reality. It is called the kingdom of God. It is God's vision of the future that he invites us to be a part of building. And it's an entirely alternate understanding of reality. That's what we're digging into in Ephesians 4 tonight. Is it jarring how much more eye contact I can give you as I preach? <laughs> Scary? Yeah, it's coming. All right. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's dig into this. So, What we get in the context before this part of Ephesians 4 is Paul is talking about the idea of a new life and an old life, a new reality and an old reality. And he starts by talking about the church and the unity that's needed in the church, even amongst our diversity. And so he uses this metaphor of the body. And you've probably heard it if you've been in church before, this idea that someone's an arm, someone's a leg, someone's an ear, someone's a foot, all of that. Some of your blood vessels. It doesn't matter. We're like the body. Christ is the head, and our job is to grow up to be like Jesus. And if you have had a sibling with a big head, you know what that means. You've got to grow into your head. Your body's got to grow into your head. You know who you are. But how? That's the real question. But how? Paul goes on to tell us, by living a new life. That's how. 
Paul, who so often writes to Jewish people, reminding them of their identity. The Jewish people got caught up in religion often. They would go, by doing these laws, that's how I will know God. That's how I'll earn God's approval. But Paul here is writing to the Gentiles. That if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. Everyone else is the Gentiles. And most of them are pagan. They come from Roman and Greek backgrounds, which means they, they worship the diaspora of the gods, you know, from Hercules to Zeus to Hera to Artemis to Poseidon, all these different gods that served them conveniently at different times and that they could blame for their problems at other times. And so Paul talks to these guys and he says, you need to be warned not about religion, but about your own selfish identity, the cult of me, the idol of me. That's what we've got to work with. So the Gentiles, because they worshipped statues, these limited gods that could not get in the way of their desires, they got caught up in that kind of worship, which means they were the center of their worship, really. And Paul calls that type of spiritual life ignorant and darkened in understanding. He says that the Gentiles give themselves over to every kind of immoral behavior, and the NIV puts it this way. He says, having, having lost all spiritual sensitivity, they have given themselves over to physical sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Here's what that means. Imagine a generation of people so spiritually apathetic that they let every little feeling and desire they have control them. Imagine a generation so morally bankrupt that their personal whims on any given moment control and define for them their sense of right and wrong. Imagine a generation so full of greed that no matter how twisted their desires get, they're never able to fully satisfy. Now, if you can imagine that, and I know you can because we live in that generation, then you can imagine the construction of reality that Paul is challenging here. He is challenging a construction of reality where we are at the center and the highest good is our moment-to-moment happiness. Now, when you say a phrase like that out loud, you kind of got to listen to it again and go, is it that big a deal to challenge our moment-to-moment happiness? Like, what's wrong with that, really? Don't we want to be happy? Isn't that, frankly, what most of us are doing in life? We're trying to get by. We're trying to be happy. We're trying to live, we're trying to find meaningful work, we're trying to find friends that, uh, that are valuable, we're trying to find uh, maybe a partner or a spouse who we love and can invest in and can invest in us. What's wrong with pursuing happiness? Well, nothing, I guess. But let me ask a question. If that's where you are today, and you've been pursuing a life that is about your personal happiness, how's that been working out for you? Like, really, if you've been doing your best to minimize God and sort of put God to the side and just to go, okay, like, God, you might be a thing, but I'm kind of pursuing the kingdom of me right now. I'm going hell for leather about me. Are you happy? Have you got what you're desiring? Because it's one thing for me to say the Bible says this is a bad idea. It's another thing for me to say that it's, it's idolatry and that's, that's the heart of idolatry. But it's worse to go, it doesn't work. Right? Like, why would you do it if it doesn't work? Why would you follow a system of reality if you can tell already that it doesn't work, that it's not real? You wouldn't. This is why Paul says that our desires get more and more twisted, that they're full of greed, because there is a hole inside of us waiting to be filled. And friends, if you don't fill it with Jesus, it will be filled with something else. It's just you might not have the choice about what that is. Now, this is what the author David Foster was, not a Christian, what he says about worship. There is no such thing, this quote, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. 
The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. End quote. It's a heck of a quote, and I cut some out of it just to make it a bit more brief. David Foster Wallace, go check out that speech. Now, he's making a critically important point about reality that you need to catch. What you worship defines your reality. What you and I worship defines our reality because it defines our loves and our loves and our affections shape our reality. For the Ephesians, Paul makes this point in verse 18. He says, if you view reality the same way the Gentiles do, it will eat you alive. And this is what he says about the heart. You'll either be ignorant and naive about what God is doing in the world or worse, you'll become hard-hearted, refusing to be impacted by God even if you see it. Some of us ignore God's reality through ignorance. We are just choosing not to see it. We are walking through the life naively. But others ignore it through hard-heartedness. We do see it, and we still say, I'm not going to have a part of that. In both cases, it's delusional. How targeted are we feeling tonight so far? All right. Everyone's really behind this. And it forces us, listen, it forces us to construct a different reality to God's. Because when our heart is not aligned with God's, we have to align our heart with something else. And it's going to be unintentional. Or it's going to be intentional after the wrong things, like David Foster Wallace said. How's that reality going for you so far? But Paul then goes on to encourage them that this is not how they came to know Jesus. He says, to know Jesus the way we are meant to, Paul says, requires taking off an old way of life. Putting on a new one, stepping out of an old reality and into a brand new one. And right here is an important point about the center of Christianity. If you're not familiar with Christianity, if you're not sure what it means to be a follower of Jesus, let me tell you much of Christianity we think is about going from a bad person to a good person. That is not what Christianity is. Christianity is about going from a dead person to a living one, dead in our sins alive in Christ. It is not a behavior modification program. And if you have felt hurt by the church before, first of all, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry that you've gone through this. But if you have, it is probably because that church has mistakenly looked to behavior modification rather than heart transformation, which is at the heart of the gospel. It's not about changing your behaviors, at least not in the beginning. We'll get to that. So the last line of this reading is an important one because if we're trying to live as followers of Jesus, this is verse 25 I'm pointing to, in this new idol-smashing kingdom of God reality, we have to help each other. 
We have to help each other by speaking the truth so that we don't get caught up in our old reality because your old life will drag along behind you, weighing you back unless you are conscious of it. You're trying to step into God's new kingdom reality and your old life is pulling you back because it's so much more comfortable. It is so much easier to slip into old habits until the pain adds up and we are forced to align ourselves with God. If we do that, we are helping each other to move from an old reality to a new one. We're holding each other accountable. Or as we say here at Encounter, we are being real with each other. And I am like 15 minutes in and I've only just said the word real for the first time. So buckle up. It's that kind of night tonight. Now, we are a church that values being real. And when I talk about our core values and I talk about being generous and being all about Jesus and being all about people, being all about real, it's that one that gets people excited. So I'm like, that's so cool. I love that idea. I'm like, yeah, we love it too. I'm like, yeah, just authenticity and just living it, man. I'm like, yeah, everyone likes it until they have to do it. Everyone likes the idea of authenticity. But what they mean is, I don't want you to put up a veneer and I'd like to judge you for that veneer. But please don't make me actually be real. Because when I'm real, I have to be vulnerable, I have to be honest, I have to be willing to be transformed. We don't really want that. How hard does that sound? Maybe we'll do one of those things. Maybe we're game enough to go to vulnerability. But if we live in vulnerability, that becomes a victim complex. We just go, I'm being vulnerable. No, actually, you're just dumping on us all the time. We want you to grow out of that. I'll get to that in a second, but there is a process in this, a process in Ephesians 4 that teaches us how to be real in a way that is biblical and helpful and transformational. Each of us, when we begin our faith journey, and maybe you're here and you don't even think you've started one, but you've got questions. Where we start is where we start. We begin with our mess in our hand. We begin exactly where you are. God is not waiting for you to get somewhere to reach you. You're there. You are right where God needs you to be to reach you. Exactly as you are, you do not need to get your behavior in order. You do not need to get your mind in order. You don't even need to get rid of your doubts. God is there with you in that. He is not intimidated. The God who created all of the universe, the infinite galaxies that we know, the expanding universe, he's, he's not worried by our doubts, trust me. He's fine with them. He has heard them before. So you can bring that stuff and God will meet you right there. He meets us in the mess of the life we tried to forge for ourselves, our our self-identity, our our narcissism, and he calls us out into the kingdom of God. It's in verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul says that God is calling us, and he's doing that to you right now. He's calling us to himself. And so that's the first step. God calling us. He's calling us out of the old life to stir our hearts and realign them with his so that we aren't ignorant or hard-hearted. And he's helping us take our lead from Jesus. That's the whole growing up into the head part. Taking off the former way, putting on the new way. This is how you do it. Three basic steps. Step one, get the heart right. It starts with the heart. Like I said before, what the church, including me a whole bunch of times, has done badly is we go for the behavior. We're going, I don't like that behavior. I disapprove of that. I think, frankly, I think that's unbiblical. And now sometimes that's true, but often we're calling out the wrong things or in the wrong people. What we need to be doing is checking in with our own heart, first and foremost. What is going on in our hearts? 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
That is always what God has been about. God does not want your behaviors to change so much as he wants your heart to be captured. Because when our hearts get captured, later on our behaviors change. If you're worried about your actions, don't. Start to change your heart. Don't be ignorant or hard-hearted like we read about in verse 18. Be intentional about following Jesus and open to what God wants to do in your life. So transforming our heart is about desiring God's will first and foremost in our lives. Right? Let me just say that again. Transforming your heart is about saying, I want God, your will, above everything else in my life. There's nothing else I desire more than that. Because when we do that, we can actually start to change. If you can't do that, you're not going to change. You're going to be stuck in the old patterns of your life. Here's the second thing. We get the mind right. Because you can get the heart right and still have the mind off. You and I know people who have good hearts, but not much in the way of a a good mind. And what I mean by that is we can be foolish in our minds, even while being good in heart. I would make a suggestion that if you're here and you've seen friends who have got excited about faith in their hearts and seemed really excited and then have drifted off fairly quickly, it's because while their hearts were postured to love God's, their minds were unwilling to do something about it. We've got to take the desires of our hearts and put them into the action of our minds. Now, you might be familiar with the concept of neural pathways, right? A neural pathway is like a little river running through our brain, and it's creating a little riverbed, and it's formed by habits. So we do, a ha- we do something, then we do it again, and we do it again, and it starts to become a habit, and these little neurons running through our brain start to fire together, and they make these little pathways, and these deep fissures in our brains, and they become habits that we do. That's why, if you've ever tried to break a habit, it's really hard. You have to do it for about three weeks to break it and form a new habit. And it's, it's not just about breaking the old habit. It's about forming a new one. You've got to create a new neural pathway. This is basically what God's talking about. In the Bible, again and again, is called the renewing of our minds. Not the renewal, one time. Renewing, continual. This is what we have to do. If the heart is a promise, the mind is the execution of that promise. It's a discipline. So we need to take the promise that we're making in our heart and begin to transform it through the renewing of our minds. It's an ongoing process of making choices that align with the kingdom of God. Not once, but again and again, that's how we become new. And that gets me to the third and final stage, and that's the behavior stage, getting our behaviors right. Because there are definitely actions and ways of life that are of the kingdom of God and ways that are not. But if you try and jump straight to the behavior stage, and you forget the heart stage and the mind stage, you really only got a couple of options. Number one is failure. You just fail. And then you'll either get disenfranchised and you go, oh, it doesn't work. Or you get angry and you might blame God for it. But really, you haven't set about that in the right way. You actually haven't wanted your hearts to be transformed. You can kind of tell that if you're getting angry for God because your behaviors aren't changing. I mean, whose behaviors aren't changing? It's not God's. So at some point, we've got to ask ourselves, what's going on in our hearts? And that's a really, really deep question. And I find, I talked about this this morning, one of my new like flashing red lights is when people say, I don't like small talk. Like, oh, all right. So people say to me, I don't like small talk. And I kind of lean in. Like, you don't want to say that to a pastor. Because if you say, I don't like small talk, I'm like, oh, how's the condition of your soul? They're like, 
Like, what? Like, I'm just asking, like, what's going on in the deepest recesses of your humanity? And like, this is too much. Like, you just told me you didn't like small talk. Is this not okay? Like, oh, man, isn't there a middle ground? And there probably is, but that's where I go. So, you know, just be careful what you say. But the reason that's a flashing red light to me is because often I find that people who say I don't like small talk means please don't talk to me. I'm worried about what you're going to dig up if you start talking to me. And they actually do like small talk. They just don't like calling it small talk. Anyway, again, that's a whole other sermon. I'm trying not to preach too many sermons all at once right here. Getting our behavior right is, is about doing things like spending time with a sister or brother in Christ. And if they're behaving in a way that is inconsistent with how God calls us to, calling them out on it, but then digging down to the heart. Right? It's, it's, if you don't call them out on it, they're not going to know anything's wrong. So, you know, if, if somebody, if you see your friend who is married and they cheat on their wife, you should call them out on that. Like, kindness isn't going to help them, right? You should call them out and then go, man, what's happening here? Like, I was at your wedding. What, what's going on here? What? And start digging down to the heart because it's only the heart. If you challenge a behavior and just keep harping on about the behavior, they're just going to get angry or ashamed. It's not going to transform their hearts. They're just going to go on in the same bad behaviors again and again. What you want to see is a heart transformation. Because when you fall more deeply in, front, in love with God, church, you want what God wants. You start to long for that in your heart. You grieve the Holy Spirit and you grieve yourself. And so then you go, how can I change? God, show me. And God does in his grace. And so you begin to renew your mind and set, set your mind on the things of God and go, okay, if this is what I want, how am I going to do it? That's the renewing of the mind part. And then you do it. That's the behavior part. And then you stuff up because that's the sin part in our lives. And then we go back to our hearts again and we welcome the forgiveness of God. We repent. We confess our sins. We receive forgiveness. And we begin this process again, except it's easier to slip back into the habit the second time. The good habit, not the bad one. It's easier to get back into that renewal because we've already started to build that. This is the encouragement of God to you. I can tell how encouraged you feel. So let me jump down to here and say, this is all well and good, but what does it mean to be real here at Encounter Church? Okay? It's, it's a long weekend. You all got an hour's less sleep today. Obviously, I'm preaching a firestorm here, but still, I just want, I want to help you. I want to help you. So this is what being real means at Encounter, Okay? It means I say things like that sometimes. But here's what it means. You can belong before you can believe. You do not have to be a believer in Jesus Christ to be part of this community. Maybe you're online. You're just checking us out for the first time. You have no idea what you think about church, but you sure as heck know you want to check them out online before you get into the building with somebody like me. Fair call, especially tonight. But let me say this. You can belong before you believe because that's where God meets you. He's going to meet you in the mess. And likewise, that we want to meet you wherever you are. Bring your baggage. We've all got baggage. Bring your baggage into church. We are not bothered by this. The difference is when you bring it, after you started to become a part of the community, hopefully not week one, that'd be a bit rough, but after a while, we're going to call you out on your baggage. Because we don't want you to be stuck with that baggage the rest of your life. We don't want you to have some family of origin issue that you've been dragging around behind you all your life without letting go. Because it's going to free you. It's going to liberate you in Jesus' name. So that's what we want. You can expect to be challenged on your baggage. Now, we love you regardless of that, but we want you to grow out of it because it's sin. 
It's rejecting God's reality and continuing to walk in our own. Now, that sounds super christian so let me put it another way. It's you holding on to your dumb life that doesn't work. It doesn't. That's the problem. I know, everyone's like, you can't say that. Well, I just did. It's on camera. You've got to let go. All of us do dumb stuff, right? Get over it. Get over it. I do it all the time. I say things and I'll be like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was stupid. And it is. Guess what? God's a forgiving God. God takes all our mess and he says, it's okay. Renew your mind. Set your hearts right with me again. Don't get hard-hearted about it and defensive. Don't get ignorant and pretend it didn't happen. Realign your heart with me. Renew your mind. Set yourself to do something about it and then go and walk in the light again. It's okay. It's okay to do dumb stuff. It's not okay to do it again and again and again and either think it's okay or there was nothing wrong in the first place. Sidebar. All right. So we will challenge you when you're not living a kingdom life. Here's what that means. Victim complexes need to be addressed. You can't stay a victim the rest of your life. It's no good for you. Passive aggressiveness isn't tolerated. So that's okay, I guess. Um, There it is. Okay, thanks. Um, People who dishonor leaders are called out because we speak well of each other here. Even though I know I just called you ways of life dumb, we do speak well of each other here. And and, and we personally champion each other. We lift each other up. We honor our leaders, not just Jen and myself, but I mean, if if you're working as part of a team and somebody's directing you and they say, hey, like Ash is leading hospital and she said, can you please do this? And somebody says, no. It's like, well, yeah, you will because she's leading you and you are part of the body of Christ and it works because you're working together. So we honor our leaders. We challenge you to have a high work ethic. Don't fall into the Australian principle of uh, having a sickie. It's just so Aussie. What, cheating your employer is Aussie? Being an overt liar and cheat is Aussie? Nah, mate. Not my Australia. Let's not do that. If you need a sick day, call in and take a sick day. They have things called mental health days now, which is almost like they've codified sick days. It's just saying, like, whenever you feel like you need a break, take it. And you do. And mental health is a whole other thing, and it's very real, and you've probably heard me preach on that before. But don't take a sickie. Have a high work ethic. But take vacations. Sabbath. There are times when you've been working yourself to the bone and you need a week off. You actually need to take a holiday. That's why they're there because your employer wants you to have a break. The Sabbath is instituted so that you and I can rest and be renewed in the Lord. It's not just because God likes rules. It's because he knows that after six days of work, we're going to be stuffed. So renew ourselves in Christ. That's what the Sabbath is for. Anyway, your personal spiritual growth will be our highest priority. (laughs) Your personal spiritual growth, church, is our highest priority. That's our highest priority. So if I say things and you're like, oh, I don't know if you should say that, it's because I want you to grow. I don't want you to be stuck where you've been. This is why I love internships so much. People put their hand up and they say, I'm going to give a year of my life Every Friday, every Sunday, I'm just going to be poured into. And I will sit down with them and like, are you sure? Because I will own you on Fridays and Sundays for a full year. And they're like, yes. (laughs) But you get transformed. Because you're setting your heart by saying, that's what I want. Then you set your mind by saying, I'm going to do something about it. And then your behavior say, I am signing up for this. And then we help you as the body of Christ to stay accountable to that. And you will grow. That is my promise. That's why I love it, because we want you to grow. 
And fair warning, if you're new here, if you've never heard me do this before, be warned. Like, you probably don't just want to come up to me at the end of the service and say, oh, I really liked your sermon. Because I will say, why? <laughs> what did you like about it? What did you get out about it? Because I don't preach for the sound of my own voice. I preach for the glory of God and the transformation of humanity. That's what we're about here. That's what we want. Chris Haynes, I'm looking at you. You can ask me afterwards. I know it. And I'm just, just be ready, my man. <laughs> Here's how I want to sum all of this up. God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. He loves you exactly as you are right now. You are perfectly designed in this moment to have an encounter with Jesus. But you don't stay the same after you meet Jesus. You can't. You know, lepers would meet Jesus and they would be transformed. And there are all these stories in Scripture of things that happened where Jesus would heal 10 people with leprosy. And they would be so overwhelmed that, they would, that they'd be just running off celebrating. And one of them would come back to praise God. I just want you to bear that in mind. Jesus would heal 10 people and only one of them would realize what was really going on. And what the real source of that healing was. That's what we want. That's what we want. Last thing I'm going to say, and then I promise I will free you. Right. I want to talk about truth in love for a second. This is a phrase that a lot of people really like. Usually the people that like it are people that actually like the idea of speaking truth without love, but we'll get to that in a second. This is very important. Here's why it's important. You have to do both, truth and love. Love without truth is what, like, when you kill people with kindness, when you just blindly double tap their Instagram and you're like, yep, I like that. You don't really like it. You just like it because you're a friend and you feel socially obliged to double tap, right? And so... What you're doing when you do that is just blindly affirming. People say all sorts of stupid things on the internet. I don't know if you've noticed that, but they do. (laughs) And they also say all sorts of stupid things. And our choice is how we respond to that. When we blindly affirm people's bad decisions, we are hurting them. We are killing them with kindness. And then they just disappear off the radar of church or off our lives. And we're like, oh, that's a shame. But it's our responsibility because we didn't help them. We didn't speak the truth to them. That's important. People need boundaries to grow. They need clarity about reality. So love without truth isn't enough, but truth without love isn't enough either because truth without love is just being a jerk. Like if you're here and you're like, ah, I just love speaking the truth to people, just be a little bit careful. Like I'm a little bit like that, so I've got to watch myself. Just be careful because sometimes it's just our excuse to say no offense and then say something really offensive. (laughs) You can't do that. You can't just say no offense and then say something offensive. Pretty sure that was in a Will Ferrell movie somewhere. We claim it's for their benefit, but what happens when you do that is the person, if they don't have that love, they don't have that relational boundary, all they do is respond by being ashamed or angry. Those are the two ways you respond. If you, if you feel like attacked, you'll go angry, that's fight mode. If you, if you feel you know, crushed, you'll get ashamed, that's flight mode. That's what we do. So love without truth is enough. Truth without love isn't enough. But love and truth together is. Because love greases the wheels of truth. Love is like the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine of truth go down. Mary Poppins was right. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. So love without truth is lying. Truth without love is cruelty. But truth in love is growth. And it's growth into Jesus. That's the purpose. We are not self-helping ourselves to the way to our slightly better life. We are being renewed and reformed in the image of Jesus Christ. 
It's different. Now, if you come to church and um, you get something out of it that you go like, I, th- I think I'll be a better person because of this. That's nice, but it's not what gets me up in the morning to go to work. It, it, it's <laughs> Not that that's why you come either, but... What it's about is the transformation of the heart to be more like Jesus. Because when you do that, right, this is where it all comes together. When you fix your heart on being transformed by Jesus, and you begin to renew your mind, and then you live it out, you look around and you go, I can't do this by myself. Because I'll just fix myself on my version of Jesus. But then when I sit down and talk with somebody else, I realize there's something going on. I need to work this out in community. That's called the church. That's why the church is critically important. You can't be a Christian on your own. No offense if you're believing that, but I just said something offensive. (laughs) You can't be a Christian on your own. You need community. You need to work out your faith in community. And when you do that, you begin to find that you bring something to the community. You bring your time, your talents, your gifts, your spirit, and you realize that the people around you bring something too, and you work together, and that's called the body of Christ. We're all working together to be part of something more profound. And then you begin to grow deeper in your faith, and you look around, and you realize you're not the only church. In fact, there's lots of churches, little ones, big ones, house ones, mega churches, doesn't matter. People gathering together on purpose to become more like Jesus. And as you do that, you go, I am part of something bigger. I'm part of a movement I'm part of a capital C church. And then you look around and you go, actually, this is something that's been happening throughout history. And there are saints for generations throughout millennia who have shaped and formed my understanding. So the church is something bigger than this. It's a historical, present, and future-oriented church. And then you look forward and you go, if the saints have influenced me, how am I influencing the future to look more like God intended? And that is the kingdom of God. We begin to look forward and go, what is breaking in? What is the Spirit doing that I can get on board with? Not just me, but my community, not just my community, but the global church in the historical church moving forward into a kingdom of God reality that both is being built and is still yet to come. That's a lot of theology all wrapped up together, I know. That's why the church is so important. You can't do life alone, but you do need to do it and do it with Christ. Everyone loves real until we have to do it. (laughs) But until we can be both vulnerable and teachable, until we can both not be ignorant and also not hard-hearted, we have renewed minds, soft hearts, transformed lives, we're not going to do it because being real church is about growing up. Growing up in Christ. We're not real just to rip all the band-aids off. We're real so that we will grow up into Christ. As it says in Ephesians 4, in every way. Every way. Thanks so much for listening. I pray that you were able to hear from God in a fresh way today. We'd love to hear from our listeners. To connect with us or to support the work of Encounter, please jump on our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to jump onto iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast provider and give us a rating and review. Or share this message on your social media accounts and tag us at Encounter Adelaide. God bless. Have an amazing week.